Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Burns. How you doing? I'm good. We got another great guest today. We do. In fact, somebody who, who both of us have known and are really excited to talk to and to whom the toy industry should be listening very carefully. This is David Kleeman, SVP Global Trends for Dubbit, a research and app development company. And just he knows like so much about electronics and kids and apps. And we're just so glad to have him here today. David, thank you for joining us. Thank and I just, you. And I just add, he's a really nice guy as well. We don't talk to anybody who's not a nice guy. <laughs> that, now, it's, now it's scary. Now I have to be nice and informed. So why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about Dubbit and what you do and a little bit about your history because it's pretty impressive. Let me start with my history just because I think it informs what I do for Dubbit. And that is that I long, long ago thought that I wanted to be a preschool teacher, which was very unusual at the time. It was the mid-70s and men didn't want to be preschool teachers at the time. And, and even more so, I went as an undergraduate to Harvard, where they have no idea what to do with someone who wants to be a preschool <laughs> teacher. But if, you, if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, great. You have, to teach was, class, you have to teach the classics in preschool. <laughs> uh, well, I, I did. My roommates were reading their Locke and Mill and other political philosophers, and I was reading the Little Engine that could and watching Sesame Street. Those are those are the classics. <laughs> <laughs> but I was very lucky that about a month into my freshman year, I heard a lecture by Jerry Lesser, one of the creators of Sesame Street. And literally in the course of that hour, decided I'd rather teach through television than teach in a classroom. Now, in the long run, that's been a really good thing for a lot of kids because I would have been a terrible classroom teacher. Aww. I just don't have the patience for it. But, it, you know, at the time, children's television was basically three channels plus PBS in many places. It, so it was uh, it's been just great fun to be present for the evolution from three channels to immersive, always on multi-platform, multi-device media today. I never became a producer. I never became a content creator myself. I never went back to, to graduate school and became an academic. Instead, I've always forged a, a role where I can sit in the middle of education, research, child development, child health, policy, production, distribution, digital, and understand enough about um, each of those categories to, to kind of be a connector of both ideas and of people. So uh, for 25 years, I ran a creative professional development center called the American Center for Children and Media that was doing that. It was, it was putting on seminars, workshops, screenings, anything we could do to bring people together to talk about what makes good children's media, toys, play, content. And when I closed that, I realized that if I wanted to keep the objective status that I'd achieved, people would talk to me about a lot of things that, that were not public yet because they knew that I was good with secrets and also that I could bring sort of a, a multidisciplinary approach to it. I didn't want to lose that. That's a really valuable commodity. And being with a research company like Dubit is the best way to maintain that. So Dubit's essentially a three-part company. We are a research and strategy consultancy and a digital studio that does ed tech uh, and apps and also games. We're building a lot in Roblox right now, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. I'm more associated with the research side of it. And what, that, uh, what we do on the research side is 
a combination of research for clients. So I think I've described to, to both of you in the past that we're actually in the middle of a study right now for a toy company on connected play, on what we mean when we talk about connected play. But also our biggest product, I would say, and the one that's probably of most interest to the toy industry would be Dubit Trends which is a study we do twice a year, 2,000 kids in the U.S. and 1,300 in the U.K. every six months, plus 18 other countries that we do roughly once a year. Very deep dive into what devices kids own, what they have access to, how they use them, where they use them, when they use them. Open-ended questions about content. What are your three favorite toys right now? What are your three favorite games? What are your three favorite TV shows? And a lot about, in this crowded environment, how they find their way to content. Every time we do trends, we do a special focus. And fortunately, our special focus in October was toys. You mentioned that you're doing a deep dive into connected play. And obviously, we don't want you to give away any proprietary information. But any yes, top... Do, Chris. We, I know we do, but we have to pretend we don't. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so... As I said, we, we don't want you to give away proprietary information, but any any initial insights you're finding about kids and connected play, especially in this pandemic world? Well, I would say a couple things. One is families will tell us that they are doing more connected play, but I don't think there's necessarily a strong sense of exactly what that means. And I think that's probably true in the toy industry as well. Is connected play a toy that also has an app? Is it a direct connection between a toy that's tech-enabled and online. So, uh, you know, I think we're, we're trying to narrow down that definition and figure out what families mean when they talk about it and when they like it and when they don't like it. So, you know, do, do they feel like kids are getting enough time with technology and they just want them to play with toys? And when does technology enhance their play? Or are they feeling like uh, this really makes a toy more, more flexible? It makes it able to grow over time because we can get new content for it. We can play new things with it. So that's that's one aspect, is, is we don't really understand it quite yet. The second is a lot of connected toys thus far have divided the child's attention in a way that makes it, it much less enjoyable for them. That, that if you have to keep going back and forth between screen toy, screen toy, you, you uh, may even have been the one who called it uh, head tennis. Um, and, and, and that's really frustrating to a child. We've found, I think, that often putting the screen between the child and a classic form of play is not as effective as putting the, cl the classic form of play in the child's hands and letting the screen support that. So controlling a ball with a screen, at least when I, whenever I see that happen, I want to say to the child, pick up the ball. Oh, yeah. Throw the ball, catch the ball, kick the ball. It's the, it is the most elemental form of play. Whereas if you play with the ball and the screen can provide something additional to you, whether it's instructions, whether it's cheering, whether it's um, information, that's a much more satisfying form of play to the child. You know, we, we talk a lot about kids and coding, and there are so many coding toys out there right now. I've always thought of coding as you know, less something we need to teach kids as a particular skill and more being about the, the kind of meta skills of iterative learning, of logical thinking, of critical thinking. So if I get a six-step program that I've, that I've put together and it doesn't do it, which step did it go wrong? How do I fix that? How far back do I have to go to make sure it does what I want? That's what I think kids need, whether they're going to be computer 
programmers or not in the end. Well, what I love about that is you're talking about the process rather than the result and that we're not expecting a first grader to be able to to code something, but to actually build the cognitive pathways that will allow them to have a facility with this when they get to it in a curricular, more advanced curricular setting. And ultimately, I think one of the things that we find in talking about toys in general is that kids and parents both are more satisfied with toys that are about process, that leave a lot of room open for kids to create their own play, to uh, hack the toy, as it were, and, and make it their own. One of my, my favorite stories about that was an app developer who found that kids were playing with his app in a completely different way from what he had intended. And he went to his engineer and the guy said, well, I can disable it if, if you know, if, 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 it, <laughs> if, if you want me to uh, make it so they can't do it that way. And he said, no, if that's how kids want to play with it, make it a feature, not a bug. Right. We certainly find that with almost everything right now. You know, During the pandemic in particular, kids are all over social and game platforms, and they're using them in ways that the creators never anticipated, because that's how kids approach play, is what, what can I do with this? Right. I sometimes like to think of educational toys like I do children's vitamins. Uh, if you recall, they may even still make Flintstone vitamins. <laughs> In Flintstone vitamins, they taste like candy, but they're on the vitamin aisle. They're, they're not on the candy aisle. And, I, and I'm wondering when you're talking about something like a coating toy, is that an educational product or is it a toy? And, and the reason I think that it, it may be important is I don't think children appreciate it when they figure out they've been tricked. <laughs> My, my mother used to bury an aspirin inside of a chocolate cherry candy, so I wouldn't know it was in there. Of course, when you, you bite down on the candy, believe me, you know it's in there. And um, it still bothers me. That's what you do um, with cats, Richard. You don't do that with children. It's what you do with cats. <laughs> That's where she got that idea from. So, David, I guess it's my question. How do you guys look at this? So, so many thoughts on that. I was on a webinar last night listening to a webinar where someone from an ed tech company was talking about chocolate coated broccoli. And I, in the <laughs> chat, objected to that saying, first of all, after a couple tries, the kid is going to figure out that the chocolate is just to cover up the, the broccoli and, and that you've tricked them just as, as you were describing with your mother. Second, it implies that what's inside is distasteful and you really need to, you know, you need to chocolate coat it because otherwise uh, they're going to reject broccoli. Well, when it comes to educational play, it's got to be play first. And actually coming out of the field with the, the study I was talking about, our dub it trends and toys, that was the number one thing is, is parents say they want toys to be educational. They want their children to benefit from it. Now, benefit can be a very broad term. Benefit can mean it makes my kid laugh. It makes, especially now during the pandemic, it makes them happy. But it can also mean I see that they gain some skills from it. Uh, when we watch parents watch their kids play Minecraft, a lot of times they'll say, you know, I never saw the depth of engagement before. They are definitely learning something from this. So I'm going to back off and not worry about how much time they're spending with it. So that's, that's one aspect to it. The other, and I've been talking about this since the days of television, is educational is not always in the construct of the, the toy or the game or the television program. It's in the needs of the child. That some children, for some children, some toys are going to be great fun, but they're not necessarily 
contributing to their greater learning. For another child who's, who may be struggling with something or who may even just be at a developmental stage where that's what they're working on, a toy no one ever thought of as being designed for, for learning necessarily can be exactly what they need to make that cognitive leap to the next, next stage. You had mentioned Roblox before, and it is, it is a platform. It is something that is really huge. In some ways in the toy industry, I still think it flies a little bit under the radar. What is it that you guys are doing with Roblox and how are you maximizing that platform? Roblox is not a game. It is the YouTube of games. There are millions and millions of games inside this, this universe called Roblox. And you can go in and you can play at any particular level. Little kids have games that they can play. Adults have games that they can play and everyone in between. And it's a social platform. So most of the games have a space where before you go into the game or even during the game, you're, you're able to essentially chat with the other people there. So especially as kids have been locked down, they've been going to Roblox as a, a place to meet up with their friends. You can hold birthday parties in Roblox. Kids all over are holding birth, their birthday parties within Roblox. It is a very easy platform to program for. And so what you find is a lot of the games are programmed by users. And this is where it becomes fascinating for toy companies. There are more than 1,700 Lego Roblox games. Not one of them was built by Lego. They were all built by users. Now, this presents a dilemma for a toy company. If I go on there and I find that there are games that use my IP, that use my toys, that use my brands, do I shut it down or do I encourage it? And what we've found through a, some work that we call fanatomy, the, the anatomy of a <laughs> fandom, is I to like the extent that. that you allow your fans to play with your brand a little bit, you, know, you have to watch out and make sure they're not doing anything inappropriate with it. But if you, to the extent that you give them some room to invent for themselves and, and to play with it, you know, as, as we were talking about, the way they want to play with it, it can be a really deepening experience and help them to connect with your brand, but also to share your brand with others. If they're creating a game and putting it out there uh, for people to play, people who never knew your, your toys before may discover them. David, are, are these games all digital or, like, or are they also creating physical games that you can play with Lego blocks? Well, Roblox is all digital, but there are a lot of toys coming out of Roblox games right now. In fact, the Roblox people have said that one of their ambitions is to have a Roblox tag on, on a massive percentage. I don't remember. They may have even said 50% of all toys five years from now. So they want toys to come out of this, this platform. You had asked what we're doing. We've been studying Roblox for a while because as a digital studio, it's a great platform to build in. So we've actually produced a, a substantial report about brands and Roblox and why they should be there and what some of the successful games are and what some of the statistics are. And that's available for free at the Dubit website, which is dubitlimited.com slash Roblox. So when brands interact with Roblox, is it like Animal Crossing where you can build in and add into the into the play experience or is it an immersive experience around the toy game or brand? I think the more successful experiences are the ones that are an immersive experience around the brand. So you can do a lot of different things in Roblox. So if if you're building if you were building a Lego experience, it would probably be around construction and building uh, rather than just having a you know, Lego billboard as you're going through through the game. 
you know, there is advertising on there and you can, you can use that to help guide people to your games with millions of games on the platform. Discoverability is still better than the app store. Uh, but it's not quite, uh, but it, but it's growing fast. We had an experience where we put up a, just a, a sample of a game that we were building and we did a thousand pounds. So roughly $1,500 worth of advertising for it. The numbers that we got in terms of playing the game, in terms of kids making YouTube videos about this game, asking, what is this thing? What, you know, this came out of nowhere, came out to roughly five cents per user acquired. Now compare that to the app store where it's two to three dollars. It's an amazing platform right now. And that's really one of the things that, that Richard and I have talked about with others and that we're both interested in, which is the how the digital landscape levels the playing field for people who are promoting brands. You don't have to have a five or ten million dollar TV budget to get out there. You spent fifteen hundred pounds and look at look at what you got. And at an acquisition rate of five cents a person, that's pretty amazing. Indeed. And then you do have to be smart about it because kids are very attentive to things that feel inauthentic to them or that feel like they're trying to be sold something. So that's why I say in particular that, that uh, an immersive experience around a brand is much better than just putting a basically an advertisement for the brand in front of them. Who visits Roblox? What is the age range and how do you manage the different ages in the community? Because there's a lot of communication, I believe. In our trends research, what we found is it peaks around 8 to 10, but it really hangs on into the teenage years. And there are a substantial number of adults there. And Roblox as a company is doing more and more to try to keep people in the game into their teenage years, to, to build their tools so that you can make more complex games that will keep people playing playing for longer. But we see kids as young as 4 and 5 going in and playing in there. Roblox is one of the, the few social platforms that doesn't have a, a 13 age gate. And they have been quite attentive to how people communicate, to moderation, to all the safety issues. There, there were in the past a couple of safety issues of people putting inappropriate content or making characters do things that didn't suit the platform or that were inappropriate. And, and they've been quite attentive to cracking down on that kind of thing because they know that, that they've got a number of people who are under, under 13 on the platform. Is Roblox changing how kids socialize? Is it changing our social structures? <laughs> I think kids are changing how kids socialize. And I actually was just swapping emails with our uh, head of trends this morning, and, and we're, we're doing a presentation about uh, upcoming about kids and audio. And I was, I was citing something that we talk about often, which is child development doesn't change, but the context does. And he added to that child development doesn't change, but the technology to, to do what's classic does. So pre-pandemic, kids were looking for ways to connect with their friends across the street, across town, around the world. Kids are, are born into a naturally global world right now. So they're looking for ways to connect with them. And they were finding it in things like first Minecraft and sharing Minecraft servers, Fortnite. And Fortnite pre-pandemic added Fortnite Creative, where instead of just playing the game, 
you can build an island and you can hang out and you can invite your friends to come over. All these platforms are becoming social gaming platforms for a number of reasons. It can be more fun to play games with your friends than to sit and watch a television program because you're talking. You're, and, and we find that you may start by talking about the game, but by you know not very far in, you're talking about everything in your life, what's going on at school, what's you know who did what on the playground and that back when we went to the playground. And then the pandemic hit. And the way we describe it is down on the corner became up on the server. That, uh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> when you can't go see your friends in person, you look for other ways to connect them. Now, that's been great for Fortnite, Minecraft, Roblox, platforms like that. It's also been a challenge for Zoom and Discord and platforms that were never meant to be for kids, but they're there because they're desperate for places to connect with their friends. And they've, they've had to scramble to make it more kid-friendly. I want to go back to Roblox for a minute. Are there any issues as to language? Roblox is definitely a global platform. And I have to say, I don't think we've studied that yet. Um, in terms of, of how people communicate across languages. I, I think uh, when you're in the game and playing, there's not an issue when you're in the waiting room. Um, that's a really good question. I don't think we've looked at that. David, one of the things I, I would really like to get your insights on is the link between digital and physical play. Digital play uh, at, at kind of peaked about five years ago with Lego Dimensions, Skylanders, and Disney Infinity, and then it just kind of all fell apart. Now, digital play itself did not fall apart, but but these were kind of the leading institutions of digital play. So can you give us some sense of where are we in the connection between digital and physical play, and where do you think we're going? It's a, an ever-evolving thing, and, and, and as the technology changes, so too will the possibilities. You know, one of the most exciting things I saw, at least at Toy Fair last year, was a game table that allowed for digital physical play, where, where you could uh, certainly buy characters that you could move around in, in games that are probably quite familiar to, to most players. You know, in, in some of the classic games, they had licensed them for use on this, this table. So the table is a virtual space. But then you put your toy on top and it affects the gameplay. Anything from chess all the way through to some of the more current day story games. But what made it different was that also it came with RFID chips, with, with near field chips that, that would allow you to program your own games. So you could take your own toys and create a game around them and use the chips to, to play that game with your toys. That to me speaks to something that we see among kids, which is creating their own physical digital connections. So if a child's got a Paw Patrol stuffed animal and has the Paw Patrol app. We will often see them when we go into when, when we used to be able to go into homes and now when we do it virtually and watch kids play with, with different toys, they'll create their own physical digital connection. So they'll play with the app and then maybe they'll turn to the toy and play out something they just did on, on the tablet. Or maybe they'll bring the, the toy over to the tablet. Um, the Toka Tea Party was a great example of that. Kids would gather all their stuffed animals and their dolls, and they would hold a tea party for them. So they were creating story around it. I think to the extent that physical digital toys explicitly define the story, 
and and don't give you a lot of room for your own creativity or for expanding on it or for making it your own, essentially. That makes them tougher to play with. If there's only one way to play with a toy, and that this applies to straight toys as well as, as physical digital, if there's only one way to play with it, it gets tired very quickly. We, we did some work for Lego a couple of years ago, and what we loved about working with them was their attention to the 10th play. The first play is easy. You're excited to get it out of the box. The second play is, is pretty, you know, usually pretty good. You're learning more about it. They're really focused on the 10th, 20th, 100th play. And what is it that, that we bring to this that is going to keep kids coming back and back? And I think a lot of physical digital toys so far have not been focused on the long term. What you're talking about is is really classic play, is kids are using whatever they have at hand to create their own experience. For me, it was matches and gasoline. For them, it's, st it's stuffed animals and iPads. Uh, but it was really, it was really, that's just classic play. In our surveys, kids, when we ask kids, what are your three favorite toys? Devices come up very often. So, so, you know, clearly at the top of the list are the classics. Lego, Barbie, always top the list. But high up on that list of what are your favorite toys are my tablet, my smartphone. So kids don't think of these things as separate. They're not thinking about physical digital. They're thinking about what's the play experience that I want and where do I best get that. We talk often about everything competes with everything right now. A kid is not going to look at the television guide and say, well, I don't like that show, so I'm going to look at another channel. They look at the, they say, I don't like that show, so I'm going to go play Fortnite. I don't like that show, so I'm going to go, you know, read a book. I'm going to, everything competes with everything. We talked uh, the other day uh, about a question I have asked several people. I, I want to ask it to you now. How much the popularity of a particular toy has to do with that moment in time? If the hula hoop was launched for the first time today, or the Rubik's Cube, or the Cabbage Patch doll, would these necessarily have the huge fan base? Or were they a matter of a moment in time that just happened to lend itself to that particular product? It's a great question. And, and I would say, you know, in some of the specific examples you've used, Rubik's Cube does seem to be coming back. I, I see it keep popping up in, in yeah. articles about play. Cabbage Patch Dolls, I think if you released it today, it would probably be very popular because kids who've been locked in at home or who've been cooped up at home for the last year are going back to, to things that make them feel comfortable, make them feel uh, feel safe. And, and that's essentially what was at the essence of Cabbage Patch Doll, you, something you can take care of, uh, something that you can nurture. Um, but, it, but absolutely. And, and it's one of the things that we've been talking about in this study of connected play is how do you build for the classic play patterns and not just the device of the moment or the fad of the moment so that you're not making a Cabbage Patch Doll that's wired up with lots of things that make no sense for how kids want to play with a Cabbage Patch Doll. You're, you need to consider their essential play patterns, as you discussed, and also their essential emotions. What are kids feeling right now? What do they need? What job am I trying to fulfill? What, what role am I trying to play? We work with a, a model that we call emotional scheduling that, uh, that says we found it in both our quantitative and qualitative research that kids have a much more a refined sense than we might have anticipated about what they need at any particular time. So what that plays out to is they will choose their platform, their 
device, their, you know, whether they play with a toy or whether they play with a tablet, based on their emotional state at the moment. And that has to do with time of day. It has to do with what they've been doing, what they're about to be doing, how much time they've got, what happened, you know, what's happened to them that's making them feel something. And so not only do you have to design for a, a moment in time, as in kids who've been in lockdown are feeling this, you also have to des- have to design for how and when do I think this is most likely to be played with. In trends, we've always found that late a- that afternoon is peak time is prime time for toys. That's when kids want to play with toys. During the pandemic, that's become much more flat. They're playing with them throughout the day. But assume the pandemic passes, you really need to be thinking about what time of day does a child have time to play with this thing I'm designing? What emotional state are they are they in when they when this would be what they would choose? Following up on that, we had talked a while ago about how, you know, advice you would give uh, companies about creating connected play. And I had said to you at the time, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. And apparently I wasn't the first person to tell you that. Can you talk a little bit about that? That expression, and the man named G.K. Chesterton said, uh, to be able to do something is, is different from, or to have the right to do something is different from it being the right thing to do. Um, and it, it's been sort of a guiding thing in a lot of a lot of the work that I've done. It's very easy to get seduced by the whiz-bang, the fancy things that you can do with a new technology, and it's very easy for you to make it a much less enjoyable, much more difficult to understand, much more complex play experience for the child when what they really want is something they can open the box and, and get right into. We're in a fragmented media market. YouTube is becoming a dominant way that kids are spending their entertainment time. They're not talking to one another in the schoolyard. How are kids finding out about toys today? And what have you found about that? As I say, we've just uh, finished our study of of kids and toys, and a couple things came out of it. Uh, We've also been doing some interviews with parents and with kids. In terms of discovery of things they hadn't known were out there, television advertising is still the most powerful, remarkably, especially with younger kids. As they get older, YouTube, less YouTubers and more YouTube advertising has become their way of finding it. And as they get even older than the YouTubers, the influencers themselves start to, to come into it. But I think what's most compelling to us is that I would not have assumed that parents loved taking their kids to the toy store. I would have thought it would be a stressful experience for parents because it's just overwhelming for kids and there's so much there. Parents are telling us, I really miss that, that opportunity of going out with my kid and going and choosing a toy because I see the joy in them when they're running up and down the aisles, when they're looking. And also I see them discover things they didn't know were out there. They'll shop online. Parents are telling us, my kids, yeah, my kids will shop for toys online with me. But there's not the same excitement and there's not the same happenstance of turning a corner and finding something you never knew about before <laughs> and, and saying, this is exactly what I've been looking for. You are talking right into Richard's, uh, one of his uh, sweet spots that he, he, loves, yeah. he loves this stuff. To me, that's the, uh, that a toy store experience is not a consumption experience. It is different. A great toy store is different than the Walmart or Target or anybody's toy department. It's a family experience. You're, you're go, it's destination. It's not, you know, going to buy bacon and while you're on the toy aisle, pick something up. It's a different experience. 
David, I'm interested in your report. Is it available to the public? And if they want to secure a copy, how do they go about doing that? I do a lot of writing and public speaking out of Dubit Trends, so certain elements of it are available for free doing that. We will often post a, f- a free sample of what we're doing. So, for example, if you go to Dubit's uh, research website right now, you'll find a sample of, of uh, Share of Time, how it's changed from October 2019 to October 2020, use of different devices and what they're being used for. That's something that's that's free to anyone. The overall study, Dubit Trends, and also the, the, the special study like the toy and game one, those are syndicated. So uh, we we sell those. You can connect with me via the Dubbit website. My contact information is there. I'll put you in touch with Adam Woodgate, who runs our trends, and he can tell you more about it. We're a company that likes to give stuff away. So we often will share a certain amount because we find that when people know we're smart and interesting, they'll come back and want to work with us. So, David, we're going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests here on the Playground podcast. And I know you said you are in the secret business, but you like to give stuff away. So tell us a secret you haven't told us. I'm going to tell you two. One is from my childhood and the other is mixing my personal life and my career. The childhood one is my parents were very anti-gun toy. They did not want me to have any gun toys. And for some reason... When I was about six years old, they not only bought me a gun, they bought a toy gun, they bought me the ultimate toy gun. I don't know if you all remember Johnny 7 OMA, oh, One Man oh, Army. That was awesome! <laughs> my only regret is never having asked my parents before they passed away why it is that not only did they choose to give me a gun, but to give me that one. And then the other story is I have had a pillow fight on the streets of Toronto. I was crossing a street in Toronto and saw a woman with a cameraman next to her in a bag, a big shopping bag. And I could see she was looking at me and I was cautious, but she said, uh, will will you play with me? And I said, sure, I'm here for a conference on kids and play. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad to. Really? Nobody else will said they'd play with me. She pulls two pillows out of the bag and says, let's have a pillow fight. And there on the corner of the streets of Toronto, we did. She was from a radio show from the CBC called Definitely Not the Opera. So uh, if you go back in their archives, you can find uh, the audio of me having a pillow fight on the streets of Toronto. As we close this up, David, any final advice to toy companies as they are looking at their development and where does tech and connectedness impact their development? I would go broader than that. I've said several times that go back to the classics of play, go back to the essential play patterns. But I'm going to look forward and say it's going to be a long time before kids are over the pandemic. And the one thing that we are hearing from families that we believe will will stay is time spent together as a family. So look very carefully right now at opportunities for games, puzzles, toys, experiences that bring the family together and let them play together. David Clemens, SVP, Global Trends for Dubit Limited. I always love talking to you. And And One Man Army. And One Man Army. I love talking to you. And I love the fact that we get to share this with our listeners. I highly encourage them to check out your site at Dubit and uh, get these studies because they are really worth their weight in gold. So thank you for spending the time with us today. Thank you so much. This has been great. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I toss about ideas that are top of mind in the toy industry this week. And there is big news this week. It has to do with one of the iconic products of the post-war years. 
Mr. Potato Head and Mrs. Potato Head are no longer Mr. and Mrs. They're just Potato Head. Richard, you think this is a good thing? And I actually happen to agree. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, it's, hey, Potato Head. (laughs) Doesn't sound as good. But uh, I I tell you, Chris, I was really struck by not so much the news uh, as some of the commentary I've seen on social networks. And, And as you would expect, uh, there are people out there who are grumbling. Uh, this is yet another change. <laughs> you know, do we really have to do this? Is this where we are as a culture? I think the point these people are missing, Chris, is that if you're Mattel, as an example, and you have Barbie, and you decide to make a gender-ambiguous Barbie, or if you're Hasbro, and here you have this very important brand, and you decide to do away with gender honorifics, that you are not going to mess with your brand and its brand value and your revenue stream lightly. And so these are not social and cultural decisions as much as they are business decisions. And Mattel and Hasbro are doing this. Yes, they see it as the right thing, but it's good business. It is good business. And it's business that's born out of cultural shifts. And I think that it's significant, especially as over the past several years, we've been trying to eliminate boys' toys and girls' toys. We've been trying to reshape merchandising. So all sorts of different opportunities are open to kids. We haven't been telling kids what they have to be or who they have to be or how they have to express gender. We've allowed that to evolve organically. And I think for something that is an iconic preschool toy, it really is a subtle but very powerful message that we really want to be delivering to kids today. Chris, I think Mattel and Hasbro are telling us something very important about our culture, about youth, and about the future. And I say this because Mattel and Hasbro are a multi-billion dollar companies, and they spend an enormous amount of money on research. Whatever decisions they have made around this area are informed decisions. And they see this, again, as I said, as good business. And so what that tells me is, despite all the noise we hear from adults around these issues of gender, There is something definitely going on among young people. If you want to see some of the attitudes in the world 20 years from now, take a hard look at what Mattel and Hasbro are doing. And and again, Chris, I think back to when the term Ms. MS was first proposed, and it was really seen as radical. Uh, Some people saw it as silly or, or unneeded. And today... I never heard the term misses or misused anymore. Miss is the go-to honorific. So I, I think this is something very important. A toy is telling us. I think it's very important. And if you remember, Miss came along because a woman was not going to be defined by her marital status, which was fairly the hegemony was that it was male-dominated, so that she was subservient to the male-dominated culture. And I think that what we've seen here with Creatable World from Mattel, with this new move for Potato Head, is we are not telling children how they have to be. We are allowing them to explore and play organically. And guess what? Potato Head play 
is just the same. It's all about that creativity. And in fact, it may even be more creative because the limits that the honorific put on the play and children's expectations of how they express gender really may be lifted. It really does make them even more creative and able to express themselves freely. The other thing about Ms. is we forget that when women got married, they lost their individual identity. My mother was Mrs. Richard Byrne. And so she'd been born Beatrice Lieb. So suddenly people thought of her only in relationship to my father. And that was the standard at that time. But we have evolved beyond that happily. This move to Ms. was was extremely important. And at the time, though, it seemed marginal. It turned out 20, 30 years later to be the status quo. And whenever there's change, there's always pushback. People don't like change. And so if if we've talked about Mr. Potato Head for years and now we're talking about Potato Head, there are people who are going to get their panties in a bunch over all of that. But really, if you look at it in the longer view of history, this is a really positive thing for how kids think about gender and gender expression. And it's coming no matter how much you dig your heels in. It is coming, and I think Mattel and Hasbro recognize that in their product lines because they are trying to serve today's kids who are being brought up with those sensibilities. So, Burn, it's been good to be with you. <laughs> Thank you, Gottlieb. I really, I really appreciate it. This is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with Richard Gottlieb, and we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy, and marketing and media agency, Chiscom. And we'll see you next time, however you decide to express yourself.